If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. How is everyone? Um, <clears throat> thanks for that intro, Dylan. Um, I said this in, at the nine o'clock, you know. Uh, I, I, the real prayer in my heart is not that um, I would say something to you today that would give you a great vision of God, um, but that God would say something to your heart today and give you a great vision of God. Um, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to launch into this thing. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is not to the wise that you have revealed yourself, Lord God, but to, to the foolish, Lord. We are deeply in need of your revelation, and we acknowledge that we are foolish. We thank you, Father, that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. I pray that you would speak today, Father, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see a grand vision of who you are, and that it would alter us irrevocably. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as Dylan mentioned, we are in the series, Unlimited. In 2011, writing the success of the movie The Hangover, Bradley Cooper starred in the movie Limitless. It chronicles the rags-to-riches story of Eddie Mora, a struggling writer. He's dumped by his girlfriend because he can't pay the bills. In his desperation, he discovers the solution to all of his troubles. A drug, a pill, NZT48. It's a brain-enhancing drug that makes him smarter, makes him wittier, makes him sexier. It allows him to write a best-selling novel, and make a ton of money, which he then uses for investments and becomes independently wealthy. The movie shows us a man racing against time and risking everything to achieve something that we are all longing for, to live beyond our limits. Hence the name, Limitless. The movie made $160 million. Frankly, I'm surprised it didn't make more. You see, it's an appealing premise Eddie's experience is universal. Every day, we are all confronted with our limits, and most of the time, we refuse to accept them. That's why we overwork, oversleep, overeat, overspend, overthink, and overreact. In our current series, Unlimited, we're taking time to consider some pretty lofty thoughts about God. Last week, we were introduced to the infinite nature of God, the godness of God. In him, there is no limit, no lack, no deficiency. This week, I'm tasked to help us consider the unlimited life of God, his unlimited existence, specifically that he is self-existent, eternal, and self-sufficient. These attributes are what theologians refer to as the incommunicable traits of God. That is, ways that God is not like us and we are not like him. Unlike our, say, our rational mind or our moral faculties, these traits were not passed on to humans when God created them. These belong solely to God. 
and to God alone. Now, some of you are thinking, oh no, this lecture, this sermon's turning into a lecture. All these four-syllable words and definitions and it's okay. I want you to track with me. You can put away your Instagram accounts and your Facebook and stay, stay with us because it's very important, actually, that we engage in thinking the right thoughts about God. Jesus himself says, those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. What we experience with God is largely related to, dependent upon how we think about God, what we believe to be true about him. But more than that, more than simply wanting to have an accurate view of who God is or who he has revealed himself to be, we find that our misconceptions about God contribute to our dissatisfaction with God and with his plan for us, his God-imposed limits on our lives. Ultimately, this leads us to sinful rebellion against God, against his plan. Just as Adam and Eve believed the lie that God wasn't God enough for them, and they reached beyond their limits, beyond the boundaries of God's good plan to grasp at godness for themselves. So we too try to satisfy ourselves by reaching beyond God's plan. So first, first attribute, God is self-existent. We have a verse from Exodus, Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is a familiar story. Most people have heard of Moses and the burning bush, even if just as a cultural reference, and they haven't read it for themselves. What's most fascinating about this story is not that Moses saw a bush that was on fire and wasn't consumed, or even that the bush spoke to Moses, but what the bush says to Moses. The bush reveals not only the name of God, but also the nature of God. The Hebrew for this is translated, I am who I am. Each aseach. I'm sure the Hebrew scholars in the room will critique my pronunciation. But this particular phrase has presented a conundrum for scholars and Translators. It's been translated many ways. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will do what I do. I cause to be what I cause to be. Now, normally in a near ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, you would give your name when asked who you are, but not just your name. You'd also give some reference, some reference to your family lineage, the name of your father or the, the place that you're from. So just as in the book of Numbers, it refers to Moses' right-hand man, Joshua, as Joshua, son of Nun. Nun is his father, so he's the son of Nun. Oh yeah, that Joshua. 
or Jesus of Nazareth. Which Jesus was it? Jesus from Jersey? No, no, man, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, okay, gotcha. So the question, who are you, is often not simply about gathering information, what is your name? But also, it calls into question the person, the position, the value, and soften the authority of the individual. So what better way for God to respond to Moses' question than to refuse to be referenced, indexed, or measured? I am who I am. I am the one who needs no title. I am the one who needs no reference. There is no family, no lineage, no place of origin that can substantiate me. I am who I am. God does not name drop. He doesn't reference his past work experience or his education. In introducing himself this way, God tells us that he exists completely, independently of all points of reference. He cannot be substantiated. He cannot be validated by associating him with anything other than himself. He exists above all things and beyond all things. He declares himself to be the uncreated, uncaused origin of all things created or caused. He is the true OG, the originating God. You can imagine that Moses is a little bit caught off guard or taken aback. Then God gives Moses a task, a difficult task. So I'm not surprised at Moses' response. You know, Moses says to God, hey, um, Bush, God, uh, let me get this straight. So you want me, Moses, to go back to Egypt, uh, the nation that I fled, where I'm a wanted criminal, uh, and then you want me to find my brother, adopted brother, who's now the king, and ask him to give up his free labor force of like, I don't know, a million people? That sounds like a bad idea. Maybe you should find someone else. But this God, this uncreated God, who created everything else, including Moses, he's not humored, he's not impressed, and he's not swayed. Moses' life isn't accidental. It was precisely the Hebrew-turned-Egyptian Moses raised in Pharaoh's house the brother of Pharaoh, who understood the customs of Egypt and the royalty, who could gain access with Pharaoh and communicate God's plan. The uncreated God created Moses for such a time as this, guided his life circumstances, and sovereignly ordained this reunion between Moses and Pharaoh. Yes, Moses, I am who I am. Second, God is eternal. If you're anything like me, you have a love-hate relationship with time. But let, if I'm honest, I have a hate-hate relationship with time. Because frankly, time just seems to be speeding up. Unless, of course, I'm doing something that I can't stand to do, in which case time is slowing down. Last week, we returned from what was a really wonderful, just fabulous vacation. We were in Vermont on the lake, uh, Lake Champlain, at the beach every day, enjoying the weather. It's like 86 degrees. I think the heat index in St. Louis was like 114. But alas, even that had to end. Whatever happened to that time? Where is that cool breeze off the lake? 
It's gone. Where are the late nights laughing with friends? Well, they're gone. Where's all that decadent Ben and Jerry's ice cream straight from the creamery? Well, we ate it all, so it's gone. And in the week that I've been back, I've had to deal with working overtime, a vomiting child, a night in the ER, unexpected medical bills, and some less than um, stellar communication with my wife. Every time we go away, I feel like we're punished for the time we took because we return to a mountainous list of things to do, challenges, problems, and there's never enough time. The next verse is from Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 and 12. These verses introduce us to God's eternality and man's finitude, God's immortality and our mortality. God has given us a longing for eternity. And that makes sense because when we look at the creation story, we know that death was not originally part of the plan. However, through human rebellion, we tried to grab a hold of God's godness for ourselves and the creation was tragically fractured. So now we long for eternity and we're frustrated because we cannot attain it, at least not by ourselves. The conflict between what we long for and what we can achieve leads us to restlessness, frustration, and despair as we fight against our mortality. Consider how much time and money and effort are spent simply to avoid aging. A recent study found that survey respondents in America spent an average of $200,000 in their lifetime simply on trying to look younger, grasping at a facade of usefulness. And guys, don't think you're off the hook because men spent $175,000 and the ladies spent $225,000. And when you add to that the money we spend on safety to protect our lives and health insurance to prolong our lives, you see that our chase, our our, our fight, and our race to achieve immortality is bankrupting us financially, if not also morally. No wonder the scriptures describe death as an enemy from whom we cannot escape. We can fight against this limit, and be driven to the depths of our despair, or at least into bankruptcy. Or we can choose to accept our God-given limits and entrust ourselves to the one who has no beginning and has no end, the Alpha and the Omega. In fact, the first part of this verse actually helps us with this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Hopeful and encouraging or maybe patronizing. I realize that I don't typically live my life as though God makes everything beautiful in its time. I typically live as though God missed the memo and he's late. He didn't realize how badly I need this right now. The bills are past due and I haven't had a raise in years. I had surgery, but I still have pain in my body. Will I ever be well? I've apologized so many times but she just won't forgive me. 
Are we still dealing with this problem? I mean, can't we get past it? I'm not getting any younger. When will it be my turn for love, for children, for success? But God, God is never late. And he's never early. He is always right on time. You see, related to God's self-existence is his eternality. The same God who is uncreated has always been from the beginning. The God who gave time a kickstart exists outside of time, simultaneously seeing the beginning and the end, bending all events of human history to his perfect sovereign will. You see, he, he doesn't exist more presently today than he did last week or does tomorrow, but he inhabits time perfectly, equally. He is not rushed by the experience of running out of time as though he could become anxious. And he is able to carry out his perfect will because he is free from the constraints of time. His eternality places him in a position that time has no sway over him. Our problem is that we lack God's perspective. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The past for us is filled with could-have-beens, missed opportunities. The present with our current concerns and problems and the future with what-ifs and uncertainty. But not for God. God has none of these. The past is filled with his perfect will and the future with his perfect will. God is a God who can command the storm and not be tossed by it because he literally has nothing to worry about. Remember that I am who I am has also been translated. I cause to be what I cause to be. Third, God is self-sufficient. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Okay, confession time. My greatest fear in life is not measuring up. Ever since I started school to this very day, I have been tested, assessed, quizzed, measured, and evaluated. In order to become an orthopedic surgeon, I not only had to complete two, count them, two years of preschool, but 13 years of grade school, four years of college, one year of research, four years of medical school, five years of orthopedic surgery residency, and a second year of uh, individual fellowship. Then, if that weren't enough, I spent two years independently practicing medicine with no supervision, and then I had to submit my patients and my cases and my complications and give an oral defense of my decision-making with work cited. Now, maybe this process was meant to help me become a great doctor, or maybe it was meant to make me so neurotic, so pathologically afraid of failure that I would never show up unprepared. I'm not sure which. But God experiences none of this. He has never been tested and found lacking. He's never been found insufficient or unprepared.
could you find that could help God improve upon his perfection? Who has ever taught him something that he didn't know? Who has ever reminded him of something that he's forgotten? The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in a temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God does not need a house. God does not need human beings. Someone once suggested that God made humans because he, he needed companionship. While a nice and sweet sort of hallmark thought, it's not true. The scriptures reveal to us a God who is perfect in his relational harmony, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying the ever-increasing perfection of their relationship. And it's out of this satisfaction, this relational satisfaction, that God overflows in an infinite amount of creativity and love to create human beings. God did not create us out of a compulsive need. He created us out of an overflow of his own perfection and satisfaction, his self-sufficiency. God is totally self-sufficient. He does not need us. And if you take anything else away from this message, let it be this one thing. You can stop bargaining with God. That's right. We've all done it. Dear God, if I could just get out of this ticket, I'll never speed again. Oh Lord, if you would help me pass this test, I promise I'll never study on a Sunday and miss church. Look, man, you don't have anything that God needs. You can't manipulate him. You can't coerce him. You can't bargain with him. Anything you think you have to offer him, you already owe to him. We, on the other hand, are full of needs. Food, water, sleep, shelter, relationships. In every area of our life, we confront our needs. Now, these aren't necessarily moral shortcomings. They're just simple facts of the human experience. But typically, we think of escaping our need as the goal of life. But that's not how God thinks of it. For instance, in relationships, a codependent relationship is one in which you find yourself excessively dependent on the approval of another person for your self-esteem, your worth, or your value. According to Scott Wetzler, PhD psychologist, Codependent relationships signify a degree of unhealthy clinginess where one person doesn't have self-sufficiency. Psychologists will tell us that the goal is to move from codependency to interdependency, a relationship marked by partners who share power equally and share responsibility for their contributions to the relationship. In essence, two emotionally mature people sharing their life together. Interestingly, psychologists don't recommend total relational independence where we sever our relationships because we don't need people. They recognize that our need for relational connectedness is universal and non-negotiable. In fact, the scriptures tell us it's a good gift. There was one thing that was not good about God's original creation, that the man was alone. So this perfect triune God experiencing relational harmony 
amongst himself overflows out of his personal satisfaction to create for the man a helper suitable to him, a wife, a companion, so that Adam and Eve can begin to experience and taste the harmony that God experiences. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Apart from this self-existent God, eternal and self-sufficient, we are nothing and we have nothing. Paradoxically, while it is unhealthy for humans to be dependent on each other, the scriptures tell us that we are utterly dependent on God. And in fact, while the goal may be for people to move to levels of greater independence, the great task of the Christian, of the believer, is to embrace our dependence on God and move into deeper levels of dependency on him. Self-existent, eternal, self-sufficient. The Bible introduces us to a God who is different, totally separate, highly exalted. We are confronted with the reality that there is an immense chasm between God and us that is insurmountable. Yet our rebellious hearts will not accept this. I already mentioned that we're guilty of grasping. Like Adam and Eve, we consider our God-given limits to be problems. And rather than accepting them, we grasp for the godness of God so that we can be our own sovereign creatures. We want to rise above our human condition and become like God, become our own gods. This pride, this rebellion, this dissatisfaction with God is the root of all sin. It is the idolatry of self-worship where we serve our own desires, our insatiable desire to usurp God's place on the throne. I want to consider three God-honoring and Christ-exalting responses to our limits, to the revelation that we are not like God. There are plenty of others, but for time, I'll focus on these three. The first, reverent worship. One of the great benefits of growing in our understanding of God is that we can know him rightly. How we approach and experience God will in large part shape or be shaped by what we believe about God. When Job is engulfed in sorrow and suffering, he lays his heart bare before God, questioning God and God's plan. God shows up. God appears to Job in the form of a whirlwind and responds to Job, but not the way that Job expected. God reveals just a tiny sliver of his true nature, and it is overwhelming. Famously, God questions Job, and Job cannot answer. This is what Job says. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will not proceed further. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Have you ever encountered God in such a way that your overinflated sense of self-importance was completely dwarfed by a revelation of the immense magnificence of God? Have you come face to face 
with the enormity of his perfection so that you were completely engulfed in his majesty, overwhelmed by his glory. It was not until Job beheld the absolute, unadulterated, explosive splendor of the great I am that he was driven to worship. Job spends 40 chapters talking about God, but it's not until God shows up that Job worships God. And I don't mean singing cute songs about how Jesus is our boyfriend. I mean, Job was ready to forget himself and his every preoccupation, his immense grief, the loss of his reputation, of his possessions, of his children, his wife, and his health. But in the presence of this God, this unlimited God, Job met something, someone so massively life-altering that his response is to abandon himself, to abandon his questions, and to give himself totally to this God. Church, that is the total life response that should be the foundation of all of our worship, both our singing and our service. A deeper understanding of God's transcendent attributes brings us to a place where, along with Job, we forget ourselves in comparison to our expanded awe of God. Second, confident prayer. Have you considered the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do you think Jesus instructs his disciples to begin their prayer in this way? He is teaching them to first take a moment and reflect on the one to whom they are praying. This recentering, refocusing act, this moment is crucial to our prayer because it establishes the context. If we take time to reflect on God's self-existence, his eternality and his self-sufficiency, it will change the way that we pray. Here's an illustration. This is a word cloud Word cloud, if you don't know, the size of each word is related to the frequency which, which the, with which the word is used. So this represents my prayers when I just sort of sit down and start to pray without thinking about God first. You know, God's in there and Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit is there. So I'm a Trinitarian, you know, that's orthodox, that's good. My wife, my kids, you know, I'm praying for my family, that's all good. But all those other words are sort of squished out to the edges to make room for this word. I find that when I pray without first thinking about God, without first worshiping this God, my prayers revolve around me. But if I take time to consider him in his magnitude of excellency, it looks like this. And Jesus takes the throne, the center place in my thoughts and my prayers. And I find that my prayers are a lot less begging God for things and a lot more praising God a lot more worship. You see, friends, we're not meant to be satisfied by the things that God can give us. We were meant to be satisfied by the God who gives. And it's in prayer when we consider who God is and what he's done and how utterly different he is from us that we, be, we are satisfied because it's in our relationship with him that we can reach the godness that we so long for, but only through an encounter with God. Look, what you need more than anything is not God answering your prayers, but coming to grips with this God who is so much bigger than your problems that your problems disintegrate. 
in the inapproachable light of his glory. Our problems are challenges for us, yes, but they are not challenges to God. To God, they are his perfect will unfolding in his perfect timing because he makes everything beautiful in its time. And we must open our eyes of faith to see how this God who lacks nothing, but rather is the source of everything, is providing for us in his perfect self-sufficiency. Then and only then can we learn to trust him. He is an unlimited, inexhaustible fountain of grace lavished on underserving people. Third, and finally, boldly reaching out. After we have our perception of God expanded through worship and our trust of God solidified in our prayer, then and only then are we ready to engage the broken world. Then and only then can we escape the bondage of our self-interest. I was thinking about our blessed rhythms, how L stands for listening. This week when I came back to work, uh, I was uh, confronted with a coworker who uh, was sharing about a problem in her life. She related to me the story of her sister and how she caught her sister's husband cheating. And when she told her sister about this guy, her sister refused to believe her and cut off all ties with her and how their relationship is now broken. And I was feeling overwhelmed about this. And as I was pondering this situation, I realized that every person in this story is grasping for something beyond themselves. You see, the husband, the husband is living as though he's self-existent, as though the creation and the people in it are tools for him that he can use as he pleases, as though he can be separate and unrelated and unconnected. And the sisters, the sister is grasping for eternality. She wants something that is familiar, that will last, that will bring some steadiness to her life, so much so that she's unwilling to acknowledge the infidelity and the lack of truth. And the coworker, well, she really wants her sister to be self-sufficient, to be able to break ties with others easily and move on to the next thing. I'm praying that God would give me a chance to share my story with her. And that when I share with her, that I would point her to the God, the God who knows no limits, the self-existent God, the eternal God, the self-sufficient God, that I can help her see that everyone in her life is longing to reach beyond their experience, their limits, and experience Godness. But that the only way that she can experience the Godness of God is to have the God of Godness. You see, the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ did not consider Godness something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a man, suffering and dying for us so that he can make a way that we could be made right with God. The Godness we long for cannot be found on our own. It can only be found through the God of Godness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. 
through these feeble thoughts. I pray that you would help us all, Lord God, to experience you as you truly are. Not even in the way that I have described, but as you truly are. Incomprehensible, magnificent, loving, gracious, inexhaustible in your mercy and your concern for us. Would you show us the true God? And may we all worship.